0: Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 to 20. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Tadeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is does not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among, among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be You will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you.
1: Uh, About four years ago, uh, somebody bought me a book Uh, I, I can't remember the actual title of the book, but it was something like this, How to Crochet in Four Simple Steps. And I got this book and they bought me some wool and a crochet needle as well. And I was like... That's a bit rude, actually. You know, My grandma at the time, uh, she's now dead, but she crocheted and she was 19, okay? Uh, I, you know, I was getting on a bit, but I wasn't that old. Uh, but then I looked around me and I noticed that some of the coolest people I knew crocheted. Uh, and so I'd just like to ask now, put your hand up briefly if you crochet. Like, there you go, the coolest people. I can't see any blokes. Do you know what, I think maybe we should have a revolution of male crocheters. If you want to be as cool as these people, then maybe you need to learn to crochet. We decided that knitting's quite cool for blokes as well. Uh, Not wanting to be sexist, so crochet as well. Um, Anyway, so I thought, okay, I want to be as cool as these cool people, and they crochet, so I'm going to have a go at crocheting. So one Sunday afternoon, I sat down with my instructions how to crochet in easy steps, my weird needle thing, and my wool, and decided I was going to learn to crochet. I had great visions of, you know, in and out, by the end of the day, I'd have made this stunning blanket. Um, I was going to be like the coolest crocheter on this earth. Anyway, after about an hour, I had meticulously studied this ridiculous book. Um, I had been on Google, I had looked at YouTube tutorials, and this is what I had produced. Hopefully, it will come up on the screen. <laughs> I was so proud of myself, but I was also slightly gutted. I was thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to cast aside all my visions of that blanket uh, that I was going to make for my uh, friend's baby. And I thought, this is disastrous. What's it all about, this ridiculous crocheting malarkey? So I gave up. Anyway, a couple of days later, uh, I was bemoaning my attempts at crocheting uh, to my super cool crocheting goddess friend, Abby, and saying, you know, it's ridiculous. What's it all about? It's absolutely impossible. What is it with this wool and this ridiculous hook thing? And she said, Libby, what I need to do is I need to come around to your house and I need to teach you to crochet. It's not actually as difficult as you think it is. And so she came round uh, a couple of weeks later on a Sunday afternoon uh, and she sat next to me and she had her little ball of wool and her needle thing hook and I had mine and she literally took me through step by step how to crochet. And by the end of that afternoon, I had made this. I was so proud, that's a granny square, just so you know, Um, thanks. I, I, and I was so proud of myself, okay. It was all very good, me having that instruction book. But in order to be somebody who could actually crochet, I needed Abby to sit down with me and teach me, to show me what to do step by step by step. Maybe some crocheters in the room can sort of uh, relate to that. Um, anyway, and so I really got into this crocheting uh, after that malarkey. And then a few months later, I've made this. There you go. So I got a bit carried away with crocheting at that point. That was Alice's blanket. I had a mission that was going to make my children each a blanket. That's my daughter Alice, covered in her huge blanket uh, that I made her. But I'd never have got to that place if I'd have just sat down with my instruction book. Well, probably would eventually in about 10 years' time. But the fact that Abby sat next to me and took me through step by step was the turning point for me. Similarly, if a potential heart surgeon had heard the best lectures in the world, had looked at every wonderful um, sort of heart surgery film, Uh, I would not feel confident uh, if they were going to operate and do an open heart surgery thing on me, unless they'd have been uh, to medical school, if they'd gone through their sort of surgery apprenticeship. I'm sure doctors in the room can give me the proper language for that. If they'd had a, a senior consultant heart surgeon just taking them through the process step by step. If that had happened, then I would have been happy for them to do open heart surgery on me. You want to know that somebody has been apprenticed who knows the school. And this is pretty much what Jesus, how Jesus works with his disciples. Jesus' mission didn't just involve him. He knew that he would only be with his followers for a short time. And so he knew it was imperative that he train them so that when the time came, they'd be able to step out and share the gospel of Jesus. They'd be able to do that gospel-spreading job that Jesus had prepared and trained them to do. And so we get to this section in Matthew's gospel that we're looking at today. Uh, Jesus is giving his 12 disciples who have been observing and have been following and been watching him, The opportunity to get some hands on experience, to have a go. It's it's now time for them to fully take part in the mission uh, of God by getting out there and having a go, doing the job themselves. If you uh, have your Bible open, if you flick to uh, chapters sort of uh, five to eight of Matthew's Gospel, basically in those chapters, Jesus, you'll notice, is primarily teaching his followers uh, about what the kingdom of God looks like. Chapters five to eight, there'll be familiar stuff there, like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. And then in the previous chapter to the one in our reading, chapter 9, Matthew records how Jesus has forgiven and healed the paralyzed man, the one that came through the roof, okay? Uh, He's raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. He's healed the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, He's he's healed the blind and mute uh, man, and he's cast out demons. Jesus had told the folk about what the kingdom of God looks like, chapters 5 to 8, and then he brought it into being through those incredible miracles those signs of the kingdom and the disciples Jesus friends had been there through it all they'd heard his teaching and preaching then he'd seen they'd seen the incredible miracles that he'd done they'd witnessed the power of god working in and through jesus But up until this point in chapter 10, they'd just been like supporters on the sidelines, watching what Jesus was doing, following him around, listening, learning to what Jesus was doing. But then suddenly, at the end of chapter nine, we see a shift in what Jesus is doing. Jesus stands up at the end of chapter nine. He looks around him at the crowds that have been following him, all these people who have been following him around. And he sees, it says in chapter nine, they are harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. And he turns to his disciples in chapter 9, verse 37, and he says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. It's like he's saying to his disciples, Look, you've seen what I've been doing. You can see the need all around us. Now it's time for you to go and have a go yourselves. He's saying, imitate me. You've seen what I've done. Imitate me. Imitate Jesus. But who do we actually put our energies into imitating? People we admire. We want to be like them. We want to be like that person. Uh, We want to be like the worship leader up here. We want to be like the friends that we really admire. We want to be like that blogger or that Instagrammer that we follow and we think is awesome. We want to be like that sports person. And they're the people often that we put our energies into imitating. But Jesus is saying, imitate me. And Jesus only ever asks his disciples to do something that he's done himself, If you've ever uh, played sport and been coached at sport, uh, this will make a lot of sense to you. Uh, A coach who you know has played the sport that you're doing to a high level or has a lot of experience coaching themselves will give you the confidence to actually get on the pitch and to put into practice the things that they've taught you to do. Uh, It's well known that footballers often ask their manager to show us your medals, uh, to show them the evidence that they have been there, they've done it, they've got the t-shirt, they've got the experience necessary to lead that team. And it's like Jesus is the perfect line manager or the perfect coach. He just doesn't tell people, oh, go out and do it, uh, you know, without having done it himself. Jesus' leadership style is all about imitation and immersion, having a go. Or put another way, about following, coaching, and having a go. Jesus says, follow, I'm going to coach you and have a go too. And so Jesus equips his disciples uh, before he sends them out. He gathers them around him. You can almost imagine the scene at the, at the beginning of, uh, that Matthew records at the beginning of chapter 10, where he gathers his disciples around him, and they're all named uh, one by one. And straight away, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus does something that's really important. He gives his disciples authority. It says this, He calls his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. The disciples' leadership is affirmed and empowered by the authority of Jesus. They're not being sent out in their own strength or their own power, but with the authority of Jesus. So first he gives them authority, and then he gives them a whole load of instructions. Okay, verse 5. Do not, first instruction, do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is basically saying to his disciples go first to your own people, get your own people on board first. It seems a bit odd to us, I think, uh, that Jesus is telling the disciples, I want you to go out, I want you to go and tell people about me, I want you to go and tell people about the kingdom of God, Uh, but I don't want you to go to the Gentiles, those people who aren't Jews, and I don't want you to go to the Samaritans, uh, the people that basically have, uh, the Jewish people that have messed up a bit, Um, but I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. So why does he do this? When surely everybody needs to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. Surely there are people everywhere who need to know healing and forgiveness and freedom. Well, Jesus isn't saying, you know, never go to the Samaritans, never go to the Gentiles. But he's just saying, not yet. Their time will come, and in fact it does, post-resurrection. But actually, this is your priority now. Jesus is telling his disciples, go first to your own people, the lost people of Israel those people who have lost their way. Give them the chance to respond and to repent before it's too late. And I think this is a really hard thing for us to do as well. It's often easier uh, for us to share our faith in places where we aren't known, isn't it, Uh, with people that don't really know us Or to do mission in places uh, where folk don't know us too. I remember when I was at university going uh, to do a mission in Hungary uh, for a few weeks. And and I'd have told anybody, anywhere about Jesus on that mission. Because nobody knew me, so it was okay. But put me in a street in my hometown or in a room with my extended family and tell me to tell them about Jesus. Yeah, that's a different story. It feels different, doesn't it? And so maybe that's what's going on here when Jesus is training his disciples by saying, first go to your own people." He's giving them confidence that if they can share this radical message of the kingdom of God with their own, with their own people, they can do it anywhere. Go first to your own people. I remember uh, when my friend James became a Christian a few years ago, his family noticed the change in him uh, immediately, and they knew that it was because he'd become a Christian, he he really changed, Uh, but he found it really hard to actually tell them himself uh, about Jesus, and so instead he started to pray uh, that God would give him the opportunity and the courage to invite them along to his church. Uh, One day he plucked up the courage to invite his mum to church um, and she came along and she loved it. She thought it was absolutely brilliant. I just think she thought the music was fab, and it was really, people were really welcoming, and so she kept going back uh, to the church. Then they were having an Alpha course, and she thought, yeah, I'll do it. I'm really sociable. I'd like to meet some new people. Went on the Alpha course, became a Christian. Uh, next, James's stepdad, Adrian, uh, started coming to church as well, because he was a bit like, what's going on with my family? And uh, he started coming along to church, and he too became a Christian as well. And then James's brother, um, also started coming along to church because James was a very sociable pe- person. He was always having parties. He invited his brother to a whole load of parties with people from church. He came along and he became a Christian too. At the end of the day, God heard James's prayers. And once he'd stepped out in faith and asked his mum to church in courage, the Holy Spirit did the rest. Where is the equivalent of your hometown? The place where it's hardest for you to go and be a Christian, the people that it's hardest for you to be a Christian with, to share the good news of Jesus. Do you and I need to pray that the Holy Spirit will give us the courage, the words, the confidence, the opportunity to take Jesus's love into those places and to those people? And next, the next instruction, they're instructed to take the message that the kingdom of God is near. But it's not just about going into a nice town, doing a nice little sermon in a nice little synagogue somewhere, and then moving on. But it's about bringing in the kingdom of God in a radical and exposing way. There'll be no hiding for the disciples in what Jesus is telling them to go and do. Jesus tells them almost casually to do this in verse 8. So, I want you to go and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons, you know, just in a day's work. It's not mild stuff. He's not asking them to politely ask folk to come along to Alpha with me on Wednesday at Costa, even though that's a very good thing to do. Um, He's saying, tell people, uh, tell people you encounter that the kingdom of God is near and then demonstrate what that actually looks like by healing the sick, by restoring the outcasts, by raising people from the dead, by cleansing those who have leprosy, by driving out the demons. It's scary and it's wild and it's powerful stuff. But remember, he's not asking these 12 disciples that are listening to these instructions to do anything that they haven't witnessed him doing himself only a couple of days before. You've seen it, now go and do it. All these signs of the kingdom do still happen today as well. People do get healed. Individuals are released from demons. But because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the most powerful sign of the kingdom, I think, is the forgiveness and the freedom and the new life that people can have in him. So you wonder at this stage in uh, Proceedings, What state the disciples are in as they're sat there at Jesus' feet listening to these instructions? Some would have been like champing on the bit to get out there and have a go themselves. You know, I want to do a bit of raising the dead and stuff like that. Uh, They want to get on with the job. They're excited. Others are sat there shaking in their boots, feeling absolute nervous wrecks, really apprehensive, thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus, you know, you cannot expect us to go and do this yourselves. But Jesus isn't letting them at it yet either because he's got a few more instructions to give them. This is big stuff. And so he wants them to get it right first time. It's a bit like a, a plumber who has uh, been trained to be a plumber and they're about to go on their job for the first time. Uh, they've read all the manuals and textbooks on plumbing they possibly can. They've been at college training and had a go at stuff. They might have even been out with the boss on a couple of jobs. And they're about to go out for the first time. And their boss is keen that they make a good impression on the home that they're going to be going into. And so he tells them a bit about, you know, plumbing etiquette, uh, a bit about the context that they're going into. Maybe he knows the family. And he tells them a bit about what they're like as well. Because that he wants them to get it right first time. And Jesus wants the disciples to be fully prepared, fully coached, to get it right And so Jesus now gives them some detailed instructions. You'll see them in verses 11 to 14 about how to enter a town, how to enter a town. It's not like, you know, swanning in, doing a few miracles, uh, swanning out and like leaving carnage behind you. He starts by saying this. I think it's really interesting. When you go into that town, find a worthy person. When you go into a town, find a worthy person. It's like the first thing you do. Find a person of peace. If we love Jesus, then we're called to love people. And we too are called as disciples to seek and save those people who are lost. That's those people who don't yet know Jesus. And seeking the people of peace in the places where we find ourselves is a great starting point. These people of peace, who are they? These are the people... um, who we know at work or in our Hall of Residence or in our course or at the school gate or at the sports club or in the numerous other ways uh, that we meet people in our daily lives. And they're people who are interested in us, who uh, are open uh, to you, who want to be with you. They're people who who you have a relationship with, but they also have maybe a warmth or an interest in your faith in Jesus a person of peace is somebody who God has prepared or is preparing and placed in your path because they're ready to hear about the kingdom of God they're ready to hear about Jesus maybe you know somebody like that now maybe somebody's popped into your head yeah they're a person of peace in my life or maybe you could pray that God would open your eyes to spot that person of peace in the places where you go Jesus is telling his disciples, find that person of peace in that town. Go into their turf, uh, the the space where they're comfortable. Accept their hospitality. Spend some time with them and be ready in an appropriate way to speak and do words of the kingdom. That might be just showing Jesus' love in a really practical way uh, to them when, when something's going on in their life. It might be even just sharing the story of how you came to faith. It might be offering to pray with them, taking that opportunity when it comes, or inviting them to your connect group or your student huddle or to church or a gathering that you go to. And if you don't find that person of peace, Jesus says, move on somewhere else. Shake the dust off your feet as you leave. Up until this point, it's all pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? You've seen me do it, Uh, Jesus is saying. You've observed and watched, and now you have the authority to go out uh, and do all the fun stuff. Go and be people and be brave. Tell them the good news. Demonstrate that the kingdom of God is light by doing a few healings and casting out demons and raising the dead. Stay with those people of peace, those who are receptive and hospitable and, and supportive. But then suddenly the mood turns, verses 16 to 18. Because Jesus is teaching them the reality of what being a disciple is actually like. And it's not all about excitement and the miraculous. It's not all about people repenting and being baptized left, right, and center. But in verse 16 to 18, Jesus makes it clear that there is an expectation that when you are a disciple of Jesus and you're stepping out for me, you will face persecution and opposition these people will be vulnerable we will be vulnerable jesus says you are like sheep amongst wolves but even as he tells them this even as he tells the disciples there'll be opposition he's encouraging them to take the opportunity that those moments bring look at verse 19 when they arrest you uh, the holy spirit will give you the words to say It's almost an expectation. You know, when you get arrested, when you're brought before kings and rulers, you'll be given the words to say. Again, Jesus is encouraging them to just imitate what he has already experienced himself. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, there are four instances in there where Jesus has faced opposition or accusation or persecution uh, from people who watched and saw those miracles that he'd done just before. And he takes every opportunity to explain to them something of the kingdom of God, the workings of the kingdom of God in those moments. And Jesus says, Do the same. In those moments where we're facing persecution, when somebody's giving us grief about being a follower of Jesus, when we're like, what's it all about, when we're having a really tough time because we're a Christian, actually take that opportunity, take that opportunity. A few years ago, a friend of mine, Richard, uh, was involved in a project which involved going in with this bus uh, to the red light district in Bradford. Um, And a whole load of people would take this bus in, and they would have food and clothing and whatever else on that bus, Uh, and they'd just be there to talk to the prostitutes uh, that came to the bus. And uh, there was one woman who'd become a bit like the person of peace uh, to my friend Richard. He'd gradually got to know her over the months that he'd been going out on this bus. And uh, she was really receptive. She obviously wanted some food and some warmth and some clothing some of the times, but often she'd just want to come in for a chat as well. And, and Richard had also had the opportunity a couple of times uh, to pray with her as well. And on this particular night, uh, he he got there with a the whole load of people. And he was walking down the street, uh, looking for this woman. Uh, she was nowhere to be seen. But then suddenly, out of this doorway stepped this like huge brick of a guy. Uh, and Richard, Richard, uh, my friend, is like square, so he's is, he's is not a small little little guy at all. But he described this guy as huge. And this guy just immediately started going in for Richard, effing and blinding about who he was and what he'd come to do. Uh, Richard was a little bit intimidated in that moment by this huge guy, who was obviously this woman's uh, pimp from what he was saying. Eventually, he got up to Richard and Richard describes it that he literally just picked Richard up by his clothes and just slammed him against this wall and in that moment uh, Richard just felt like the Holy Spirit with him and he thought what am I going to do now I'm like pinned against this wall sort of fearing slightly for his life at that moment and he just said uh, in that moment he looked the guy in the eye and went in the name of Jesus Christ let me go And and he doesn't know whether it was complete shock on the bloke's behalf because he'd said those words or whether it was actually the Holy Spirit doing something. But this guy just put him down on the floor and walked away down the street. I wonder how often we might find ourselves in a sticky situation. Maybe just in a conversation with a friend when uh, they ask us a question about our faith and we're like, what on earth do I say now? Or maybe somebody's explaining something that's going on in their lives and you're like, oh, I'd love to be able to pray with them. How can I do that? Just ask the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say in those moments. It's in that moment that we can ask the Holy Spirit and he will give us the words and the courage that we need not just to get ourselves out of sticky situations, but to speak the power and the love of Jesus into those situations. So these disciples, they were the first church, the first followers of Jesus equipped to take part in his mission, to imitate Jesus. And we are the church to do God's mission today in the places where God has put us and called us to be. We're the ones called to imitate Christ in our workplaces, with our friends, on the sports field, in our halls at university, in our lecture theatres, in our whatever hobbies we do, in all our friendship groups. We're called to step out boldly in faith, to bring in signs of the kingdom. And so Jesus might be saying to us tonight, come and follow follow me, but we're holding back. But he's going, trust me. I will be with you, like I was those disciples when they went out that first time, I'll be with you. The call on all of us is to be disciples and followers of Jesus, to imitate him with our whole lives, to spot those people of peace and to go and share with them what it means to follow Jesus. It's ultimately sometimes about being willing to take up our cross too and join Jesus in his passion.